0: Good afternoon, and welcome to our Ask the Expert webcast for ADHD Awareness Month. Our presentation today is Top Tips for Addressing Myths About ADHD. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman, and I will be your host today. The special encore features former CHAD CEO Ruth Hughes. Dr. Hughes has been an outspoken advocate for people affected by ADHD and for the ADHD community. The Ask the Expert webcast series is presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD, which gives you, our community, access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. If you'd like to talk with a health information specialist for further information about addressing misunderstandings about ADHD or how ADHD may be affecting you or someone you care about, please contact us Monday through Friday from 1 to 5 p.m. at 1-800-233-4050. Dr. Hughes is a clinical psychologist and, before retiring from her position as CHAD CEO, was instrumental in enhancing CHAD's national presence within the disability community. She played a major role in developing Chad's signature training programs, parent-to-parent family training on ADHD, and teacher-to-teacher classroom interventions for the student with ADHD. Before coming to Chad, she was the Chief Executive Officer of the International Association of Psychosocial Rehabilitation Services, now called USPRA, an association representing providers of rehabilitation services to adults and children with serious mental illnesses. She personally understands the struggles of those affected by ADHD as the mother of an adult son who has ADHD. Again, we are very pleased to welcome today's expert, Dr. Hughes. Dr. Hughes, if you would like to begin. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to be here with you
1: today. And this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart because I think uh, we, all of us, are affected by major misperceptions and misunderstanding about ADHD in the public. And it affects us in many, many different ways. We're going to have an opportunity to talk about how it affects us today, what it is, um, and some of the common myths, and most importantly, what are ways that each and every one of us can. Uh, do in everyday life to help combat and change uh, the stigma, the prejudice, the discrimination, discrimination around ADHD. Every one of us who has ADHD in our families or who has ADHD ourselves at some point experience the stigma and these are just a couple of the kinds of things I know every one of you have heard. If you would just try or a a young student who's been told uh, by a teacher who gets angry you're a failure and a screw up. Just pay attention. Or the well-meaning neighbor who says, you don't really want to give your child those drugs, do you? Or the family member, the aunt or the uncle who says, now if you were just a stricter parent she would be much, much better behaved. In my day, my father would never have let me get away with this kind of behavior. Or ADHD is just an excuse for bad behavior and laziness. We have heard these kind of comments from well-meaning, caring people, and folks not so well-meaning and caring, but it of course has a very negative impact on each of us and our families, and this is what stigma is all about. There are many, many, many groups of people who experience stigma at one point or another. And I'm going to give us some examples of other health disorders that used to be much more stigmatized than they are today. But basically, you're looking at a set of negative and unfair, and I want to underscore the unfair beliefs that a society or group of people have about something. And in our case, it's ADHD. And it always involves prejudice and discrimination. And I think it helps us think about what stigma does in our lives when we really make that connection to discrimination. So that if you are in the class that is stigmatized, there is almost always some discriminatory behavior towards that class. And I'll give you an example of some of the health disorders we've seen this with in, in the past. Um, I'm in my 60s, so I will go so if you're younger, you may not remember this, but there was a time when if people were diagnosed with cancer, that it was something you didn't tell anybody about. And in fact, the, the sort of way people talked about it is they talked about the big C, and it was a very terrifying. and, and people were concerned that other people would think it was communicable, and if one person had cancer, another could get it from them. And um, that is certainly not where we are today in our understanding of cancer. And then, of course, if you had breast cancer not only did you not talk about cancer but you certainly didn't talk about breast and so there was no discussion and very limited support or ability to come together around issues of breast cancer Well, just think about where we are today and october is breast cancer awareness month and of all the people wearing the ribbons and the activities and the fundraising that go on around that and the enormous sense of support so we know that even though and a a group of people can be very stigmatized that there are things that we can do over time that change the culture, that change the public perception, that change the belief systems. It takes time, it takes effort, and it takes coming together and working together, but we can make those changes in uh, in terms of ADHD as well. So let's look at what are some of those public perceptions that, that lead to stigma and discrimination. We still hear today, though it's better than it used to be, that ADHD is not a real medical condition. If the if you were a better parent, or if your child wasn't as, was willful and stubborn and was willing to uh, be good like other kids, then we wouldn't be seeing these behaviors or these problems. Well. All of you know that ADHD is a neurobiological disorder that we can actually look at the brain activity of people. With ADHD and people without ADHD with an MRI or a brain scan and see very different activation. Different parts of the brain uh, respond. There is some underactivity in the brain of people with ADHD in areas it should be. We see differences at the cellular level in the brain. The actual communication between one brain neuron and another and the neurotransmitters like uh, dopamine and neuro- neuroepinephrine are actually different in people with ADHD. This is absolutely a real medical condition. Another one we hear frequently is that, oh, this is a kid's thing. You know, it's a squirmy kid's disorder. They'll outgrow it. It'll go away. You know, just just wait a couple of years. Don't don't you don't 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 uh, worry about it. It'll go away. Well, and quite frankly, even the medical community ten fifteen years ago bought into this particular myth, and we know today that it's not true. That uh, many of the symptoms of ADHD continue into adulthood. That this is a lifelong disorder. What we do see is that if people get more effective at coping and managing the symptoms and characteristics of ADHD, that it's not as debilitating. And people can function much more effectively with the disorder. And so we know that adults can learn to do that, as kids and teens can. But this is a lifelong disorder. Very frequently today, we hear that ADHD anybody can go get diagnosed with ADHD um, and that the rates are going up, and they are. That is accurate, that the rates of diagnosis are going up and that it's being overprescribed. The stimulant medications are being overprescribed. What I'd like to suggest to you is that we think about this a bit differently, that we know that ADHD is sometimes misdiagnosed. There are people who have the disorder who are not diagnosed with it and there are people who do not have it because a proper evaluation has not been done. And We here at CHAD and the National Resource Center have lots and lots of information about what a proper evaluation should look like and we encourage our members and the folks who are involved in our webinars to make very, very sure that you and your family member have gone through a proper evaluation. We work with our colleague organizations such as the American Academy of Child and Adolescent of Psychiatry, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and more recently, the American Academy of Family Practitioners to make sure that um, the physicians are provided with the tools that they need to go through, to take a person through a proper evaluation. We often have thought in the past that ADHD was a, a disorder for boys, the rambunctious ones, and not so much girls. And unfortunately, an entire generation of young women were not diagnosed because we had blinders on. We know today that ADHD affects girls as much as women. And if you look at adults, that in fact the diagnostic rates for men and women are almost identical. Um, so we know that this is a disorder that is present in women as well, but it often manifests differently. So for girls, they may not have the same level of physical hyperactivity, but you might see verbal hyperactivity, for instance, instead of the physical hyperactivity or you may see that it's the inattentive type of ADHD, our, our daydreamers and our folks are quieter and sort of fade away. But but we really need to pay attention to our young women with ADHD because they are really at risk without the support and treatment that we know can make such a, a big difference. You also will have people say to you, and in fact, I will tell you, I had somebody say to me not an hour ago, um, isn't, isn't ADHD caused by too much sugar in the diet? Uh, and The answer to that is no, it's not. Um, and In fact, people have looked at that and we know that uh, sugar is not what's causing hyperactivity, not the kind of uh, AD, symptoms of ADHD that we see that are chronic, long-term, and debilitating for the, the people who are diagnosed with ADHD. Now there has been some looking at food dyes and food additives to see if they um, make a difference with ADHD. And what we know is that that may be true for a very small percentage of people diagnosed with ADHD, less than 5%. But if you're in a family where there are already food allergies, where you see variations in behavior that you feel are linked to the foods that are eaten, then for that small percentage, it may be worth investigating an elimination diet. But in fact, that it isn't um, ADHD is not cured by taking sugar out of the diet or restricting the candy and cookies and goodies. Neither is it a cause by too much TV. So you want to um, – these are are environmental causes that may lead a child to be slightly more distractible but is not the cause of ADHD. We also see people talk about motivational things. Yeah, 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 this is just an excuse for laziness and you just don't want to try hard and uh, that, you know, I don't believe in this ADHD business. We've all heard those kind of comments from from people. Hopefully not to our faces, but we've heard it. And What we know very clearly is this has nothing to do with motivation, that people with ADHD are in fact often trying extraordinarily hard Um, to control the impact of their symptoms in day-to-day interactions and in the work that has to be done, whether it be schoolwork or work at the office. and We know that it is not about laziness. It truly is a biochemical disorder. Then we have folks who think, well, you know, you just need some good organizational skills and practices in your lives. And in fact, organizational skills are helpful, but they're not the be-all and end-all of treatment. So a good day planner, or a calendar is not all that it takes to... to uh, um, uh, address the symptoms of ADHD. Often we think of ADHD only about the individual that's been diagnosed with it, but all of you on our webinar today know better than that. That ADHD in the family affects everyone. It affects the parents, it affects the child, it affects brothers and sisters, it affects the teacher, it affects the employer, it affects friends, because it is the symptoms are uh, affect behavior and they affect all of the realms of daily life, whether it's school or work or family or communication or social interactions or organization, ADHD can have a profound effect on people's lives. So we know that these are myths in the general public perception. We know that these kind of things come up. So what do we do about it? Well, before I begin to talk, I want to talk about how an individual in any uh, stigmatizing situation, tends to deal with it. And there are two different directions, and I would like to suggest that both of these directions are important coping mechanisms. One is that we um, often talk about normalization. So if um, you decide that a person who has uh, um, uh, ADHD is you're hearing that it that it makes you an outsider and somebody people don't want to be around then you may very well really push to see that ADHD is a gift or that it is the normal range of behavior is just one side of it or that it brings lots of strengths um, to your day-to-day interactions with the world, the creativity, the willingness to take risk. Um, a lot of CEOs um, have ADHD because they are risk takers and they're out-of-the-box thinkers. So we want everyone to really understand that it is a good coping mechanism to identify your personal strengths to identify what it is in your management of ADHD in and in the family and for you personally what are the things that work for you and so really interpreting them in a much more normal kind of way can be very very helpful in coping effectively with the stigmatization but the other thing that happens is sometimes in order to deal with what people are saying to the stigmatizing class is to make it more severe in a way and we see this with ADHD in terms of the medicalization that ADHD is a serious disorder needing medical treatment and that is also true and so what I would like to suggest to all of you in terms of our internal coping mechanisms is that we understand and that we help people understand that ADHD is a disability. It means my brain works differently than other people's brains and that I, um, as a person with ADHD, uh, really uh, bring some diversity to our world and our friendship and our community and our family. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good, and that we have to take the good with the bad. So these are just coping mechanisms that I want you folks to know about is is either making light of it and normalizing it or making it more severe and in in our case often medicalizing it. So here's the big question for today. How do we change public and self perceptions? And I want to talk about both of those. Um, and we actually, there is a science in research, and you folks know that Chad is very science-based. We always look at the research for everything, that looks at stigma and prejudice and discrimination and looks at what are effective interventions for changing the public perception about a particular stigmatized group. And we know three classes of interventions can be effective, and those are advocacy, education, and personal contact and we're going to talk about each one in terms of ADHD and how they can make a difference. There are two areas that we've talked about, public perception and self-perception. Because when we talk about stigma generally, we're usually thinking about the larger community, what are the sort of messages in the media, the messages in our culture, which are negative messages about ADHD. Um, And They're certainly out there and uh, we can find them every day. But there's another kind of stigmatization process that goes on that is very, very damaging. And that is when the person or the family experiencing ADHD begin to internalize these messages. So it's very, very common for a person with ADHD to begin to say things to themselves like, I'm a screw-up, I'm a failure, I'm never going to be able to get this, I'm just dumb, I'm never going to be effective at work, I'm never going to be effective at school. And Those negative self-statements are probably the number one most damaging symptom of ADHD and yet it is absolutely the most correctable because it is not the disorder itself that is causing this, but rather our reaction to public perception and stigma that we begin to internalize these messages that we're hearing. And so as we talk about each of these areas, the advocacy, the education, and the personal contact, and how we can use these interventions to change um, public perception, I want you to think about both public perception, but even more importantly, self-perception of how do we make people feel good about who they are, their strengths, and their abilities, and their ability to manage their ADHD effectively. And it, it does make a difference. So we want, and I'm going to tell you some stories along the way as we do this. So let's take a look at advocacy. We mentioned early on that advocacy is all about, that, uh, excuse me, that stigma involves discrimination. And the advocacy efforts are really paying attention to where uh, there is discrimination around the class. So where do we see discrimination when it comes to ADHD? And here, and every one of you, and I suspected when we get to questions and, and the back and forth that we'll do after I finish this presentation, um, every single one of you could give me some examples of discrimination. But here are a couple. A school refuses to evaluate a child for ADHD that is discriminating and certainly if a child was blind they would not hesitate if a child had was in a wheelchair they would absolutely evaluate the child for what uh, special services or support they need and so for a school to refuse and evaluate a child for ADHD would be a discriminatory practice I've had the experience with my son and I suspect many of you have had as well. There were years when his 504 or his special ed plan was not implemented or it was implemented very poorly. That would be a discriminatory practice again. of. Uh, taking ADHD more lightly, not thinking it as a serious disability, not providing the support services and that by law a school is required to and by uh, certainly um, we expect that to happen and would happen with other disabilities. Another area we see it at school is in discipline practices. Many children with ADHD have behavioral problems and end up in the disciplinary track at a school. And if in fact the discipline does not take into account the ADHD, does not really look at how a child can be helped with their behavior problems that are related to the ADHD, then that is a discriminatory process. So we really want to pay attention to that. So let's talk about it for adults for a moment. Where do we see it there? And here I'm going to talk about work situations. there, We will talk a little bit later about decisions to disclose that you have ADHD and when to do that and when not to do that. Um, but the fact that we have to stop and think about that and to really weigh that decision very carefully, do I tell my boss I have ADHD or not, um, again, we would never worry about that if a person were blind or if a person were in a wheelchair. Um, But we do worry about it when it comes to any of the mental disabilities and particularly ADHD. If you do say to your boss that you might need some accommodations, and I'd be glad to talk about some of those accommodations later, but for instance, one might be asking your boss to give you um, his uh, instructions in writing. So if he has five things he wants you to, to work on, rather than just doing it verbally, please send me an email so that I can make sure to post it up on my bullet board here and I can track it over time and I know I won't forget. Um, and that could be a request for accommodation. And if a boss says, I am too busy to deal with that, I told you up front, uh, just do it, that's a discriminatory process. So let me move to um, uh, medical care for a moment and insurance. We know because we get the complaints here at CHAD and we try to work on it and are advocating to change it, that sometimes in health insurance, ADHD treatment or medication is not covered. It is actually excluded from the insurance policy. That is absolutely a discriminatory process. Higher copays for all mental disorders. That's a discriminatory process. So in advocacy, we're talking about taking a look at your lo- life, identifying where you feel that you're being discriminated against, and beginning to do something about it. So what is it that you do about it? Well, first of all, you identify who else shares your concern, and you join with those folks. And then you begin to meet with people who can make a difference in the policies or the decisions around that. You begin to do things like join Chad and follow our, you know, when we send out a public policy alert, be assuring to contact your, your, your uh, senator and congressman, um, and connecting with the press and sharing your story, and, and bottom line, advocating for change. So, let's back up a minute and say, okay, so you're saying that I should advocate more um, around discrimination of, uh, when it comes to ADHD, how does that help stigma? And, the, and it helps because when you are on several fronts. First, let's talk about the public stigma. It begins to inform the, the public that this is actually a discriminatory process. It isn't just their belief that this, uh, you know, somebody's different, um, but there is true discrimination. And uh, As laws are changed, as policies are changed, as the public begins to become more aware, you will see less and less stigmatizing uh, policies, less discrimination and you will also see that over time the stigma itself begins to abate and to disappear, that fewer and fewer people will ascribe to uh, to, uh, stigmatizing statements. But let's talk about the other part of that, which is the private stigma, the personal stigma. When you stand up and fight against discrimination because of your ADHD, then you are being empowered to manage not only your own ADHD, but to own it to and to stand up for yourself and to uh, really make a difference. And I'm going to tell you a story about my son to illustrate this. When Chris was in 8th grade in middle school, he took shock and, uh, needless to say, because he's my kid, he knew what his rights were at school, what teachers should say, what they should disclose, what they shouldn't, and his shop teacher said in front of the whole class, Chris, I don't want you using the tools, the power tools, because of your ADHD. You have to wait until I can come over and supervise. Well, I want you to know my Chris is very open about his ADHD, so this wasn't news to students in the class, but he was really affronted that the teacher would share that information when it was not his right to share it and Chris was absolutely right about that it was not, the the teacher was in the wrong he should not have announced to the class that Chris had ADHD, and so he was being discriminated against by being called out like that. So Chris told the teacher that he was upset and angry and that he shouldn't have done that and the teacher was confused, uh, had never thought of it that way, and didn't respond very effectively to Chris, so Chris asked for a pass and went to the counseling department where he asked for a meeting with his counselor, told the counselor the same story, the counselor rolled her eyes and said, Chris, enough already, get back to class. Well. By then he was, uh, you know, after his mom's heart here, and he was in full advocacy mode, so then he went and talked to the principal. And he said to the principal, my mother is a professional advocate for ADHD, and she would never let, let this happen. And of course, by that time, had convinced the principal that I was a lawyer and going to sue the school. So he came home from school and told me this whole story and so we immediately, I went to school with him very early the next morning so we could see if we could calm the waters down. And uh, by that point the principal was certain they were going to be sued and instructed that no one should talk to me and so this was a situation that was getting a bit out of control. Well, and so it was my job to calm things down a bit. And so I listened to the principal who gave me a a lot of inaccurate information, and I corrected her. Um, And Chris actually stood up for himself and also corrected her. And what we said, and I said right up front, we are not interested in any kind of suit. We are just interested in the, uh, the school understanding that this is, Chris's private healthcare information and shouldn't be shared by anyone except Chris. And Chris can share it with anyone he likes, but nobody else has that that right to share that information. And so the principal calmed down, and then uh, Chris was released to class. Uh, she was relieved that we weren't going to uh, bring his lawsuit. And I then went and found his the shop teacher who told me that he had been instructed that he could not say anything to me. And I said, that's quite all right, because you're just going to listen. I said, here's how you make this all go away. I said, all you have to do is to say to Chris, Chris, I'm sorry, I should not have mentioned your ADHD in front of other students. You can do that, but I don't have the right to do that. I said, you say that and leave it alone, and it's all gone. And, he, and that's what he did. He did that in class the next day and uh, that was gone. Um, but he, so here's, so Chris was saying to the school, his shop teacher, the counseling department, and the principal that your attitudes about ADHD and dismissing the privacy around disclosing healthcare information about me, that is discrimination. So he, all of those people were going to be more careful in the future, and and particularly the shop teacher, in not doing that again. But the most important outcome of that was not the changes in the school and people being more careful about taking uh, those kind of complaints seriously, but that Chris felt very empowered. He felt much stronger. He felt much more comfortable in, in owning his own ADHD and managing it because he was able to stand up for himself and stop a discriminatory practice. And so the amount of empowerment that came from that was very, very powerful and made a huge difference for him than as he ended his middle school year and went and, and went on to high school. And I don't think he ever let anybody again get away with making a derogatory comment to him or to others around him about ADHD without addressing it head on. That's true empowerment and that really uh, erases the, the self blaming and self-stigma that often go with um, uh, stigma and discrimination. So I want you to think about in your family, for yourself, how can you really become an advocate. and Certainly, in terms of CHAD, um, we have an active public policy program. Um, We would love for you to get more involved in advocacy kinds of issues, so you let us know if you're interested in doing that, and we'll tell you how you can make it happen. You can do it in your local community, in your local school. You can do it one-on-one with people around you. I'll tell you another story. My uh, nephew also has ADHD and has Asperger's. He's a college student he's a really bright young man he's at William and Mary in Virginia and if another college student makes a derogatory remark to him about ADHD he again turns right around and he says I have ADHD and you don't know what you're talking about and then they stop because he has nipped it in the bud he has the message is that was a discriminatory stigmatizing prejudice statement and by Facing it head on, he stops people from making those comments around him, and more importantly, he's going to make people think twice before doing it again. So You can advocate on a very individual level, you can advocate within your community, and you can certainly do it at the national level, and Chad wants you to be part of that effort. Let me go on to the next area, which is education. I think you all know that October is ADHD Awareness Month and we know that um, raising awareness in the general public about what ADHD is and what it isn't are are important messages to get out there. But I want to um, provide a little caution here. While education is important, it is probably the least effective of these three interventions. Of the advocacy, the education, and the personal contact. So surprisingly, we often talk about raising awareness but and educating people about the disorder. But you can't stop there because, as I said, it is not as effective as advocacy and personal contact. Because as the, people often go through a process as they become more aware of a disorder, the stigma and the, um, their misperceptions actually may rise um for a period of time before they know more and they can understand that this is uh, more about this so what are the kind of messages that we want to get to people first of all adhd is real it's a neurobiological disorder the brains of people with adhd actually function slightly differently than the brains of other people it is highly treatable That does not mean that every person treated for ADHD is successful, but about 80% of people treated with ADHD uh, medications uh, and uh, interventions uh, find it makes a major difference in their lives. and That's a very high treatment rate across all medical disorders, 80% is quite good. With treatment and support, people with ADHD can be highly successful. We want folks to know that this is not a a sentence of a, a miserable life, that in fact, quite the opposite, good management, good information, good support and treatment can mean that ADHD becomes a minor factor in your life instead of a major factor. We want folks to share personal stories. It's not enough to just have the facts, but you also have to really know what a difference it makes when someone is diagnosed. I uh, was on a teleconference the other day with a a man in his 50s who had just been diagnosed um, three months ago. and He said to me, it just explained my entire life. It made such a difference. I could look back and understand why things had happened to me the, the way they had. Being able to share those stories about what life is like before you understand what's happening and afterwards can make a huge difference in people's understanding of ADHD and the treatment. And Of course, part of the message that we want to send out to everyone is if you think you or anybody else has ADHD, get an evaluation with a physician or specialist who has training and experience in the treatment of ADHD. We want folks to go to folks who know what they're doing, um, but You need to find out. Um, And whether you take medication or not is not the point. Um, What you need to do is find out more about ADHD, find out whether you think this is something that is happening in your family, and then really explore your options and make decisions with your physician about the best way to move forward. So we have some messages here, and Chad has these messages all over our website. We're more than glad to help anybody package these in many different kinds of ways. And in fact, part of, um, you'll see some infographics that we've put together for ADHD Awareness Month on our website. And we really want all of us to be giving these messages very regularly in many, many different kinds of ways. So let's talk about the third intervention then. And I've been talking longer than I'm supposed to. I'm surprised these folks haven't stopped me. And This is the number one most effective intervention for combating stigma across the board, no matter what kind of stigma it is. Number one, so I want you folks to hear that, and that is personal contact with a person of the stigmatized class. It is getting to know somebody and getting to know them beyond that disorder. So whether it's a, a different race, a different country, a different religious belief, um, whether it's a different disorder like ADHD, once you get to know someone, you think of them as a person, not as the disorder, not as ADHD, but rather June who has ADHD. So the most effective intervention is to know somebody who's comfortable with who they are and who has the disorder. Now I know it's an issue for many, many of you about who to to share this information with. Well, And I'll tell you, in my family, um, and partly because Chris was very hyperactive and his behavior was such, that people were either going to say, this kid is really out of control or this kid has ADHD, and Chris chose to tell people he had ADHD. And even at the age of seven or eight, he would say to his friends, who when his friends got mad at at him, he'd say, you know I have ADHD, when I do that, you just have to remind me not to do it. Um, And so he has owned it from a very early time and has worked very effectively for him. He has many friends and he's been very successful in the management, partly because he's very upfront with people. So here's the kind of thing that you could say, hey, I have ADHD, it's a genetic disorder that runs in my family and it's highly treatable. With treatment and help from my family, I find it's not a big deal. That's the kind of statement that you can make that really begins to change people's belief systems. And it's a one person at a time process but I want you to think about all the changes in our society when it comes to religion, when it comes to um, uh, 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 sexuality, when it comes to uh, various racial groups. It's because of personal contact with each other and learning about each other and getting to know each other first and foremost as people that the stigma has begun to disappear. So the last thing that I want to share with all of you, and then we'll go for questions, is that when we can stand up and own that yes, we have ADHD in our family, and it's not a big deal. We're family first and foremost. I'm Ruth. You're, uh, you know, you Chris, and this is who we are. Um, and oh, by the way, yep, Chris has ADHD, but it's not a big deal. Then that's when you will begin to see real changes in our society. Secrets can be very corrosive and so I just and I'll give you the example my sister that I talked a little bit ago about my nephew with ADHD. My sister, um, it was something that they never shared with anybody and um, when at some point other family members begin, the, the person with ADHD begins to recognize it's a secret and there's some shame attached to keeping it secret. and That shame can really add to that personal stigmatizing process that we were talking about before. So I would urge you to really think about are you comfortable with and can you talk about ADHD in a way that you are comfortable with, that doesn't overstate the role it has in your family. Um, or that for you personally, but can really help other people then become comfortable. This is the number one most effective intervention. So I hope that uh, you'll think about that and be willing to stand up and to say, hey, yep, me too. So let me stop there because I know that we have questions coming in. And
0: uh, let's go to that. Thank you so much, Dr. Hughes. I think this has been really good for our audience and for our community. And I think going a little bit longer was necessary. This is something that is very near and dear to many hearts. And everyone who is participating today has had some moment where they have had to deal with stigma or discrimination or just misunderstanding about ADHD. So Dr. Hughes, our first question comes from Maria, and the reason we're taking this one is the first question, and she asks, what's the difference between ADD and ADHD? And we get many times in the National Resource Center people calling and saying, oh no, no, no! I don't have ADHD, it's ADD, that there is something about the H in ADHD that falls into our conversation about stigma. What is the difference between the two? Um, Thank you for asking that question, Maria. The um,
1: ADD is a common uh, expression um, when the H is dropped, which is, of course, the hyperactivity because there are indeed different um, uh, types of ADHD so that we see some people where the physical activity or the verbal activity is a big part of the disorder and we see other people where it's not present at all. That and we often call that inattentive type ADHD, um, and that's the, how it was phrased in the uh, the DSM-4, which is a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. We've just been upgraded to DSM-5, and it's a bit different there. Um, but what we're talking about is that um, ADHD manifests itself differently in different people, and not everybody has a hyperactive component. And in our common language, we often talk then about ADD instead of ADHD. From a medical point of view, they are exactly the same thing. They just manifest differently and have somewhat different symptoms. Chad, because we are um, very immersed in sort of the science and the um, medical treatment, we always use the frame, the phrase ADHD. But we're including in that the folks who have the inattentive type of ADHD and uh, who are not necessarily so hyperactive
0: Thank you. Uh, we have two questions now that I'm going to give you together. They're from Christine and Kathleen, and they have a relationship, the questions have a relationship in that we're talking about doctors. And Christine asks, um, Christine states that there are many doctors and many medical practitioners who are really skeptical about ADHD in adults. And Kathleen would like to know why is it so hard to find a doctor who knows about ADHD? And how are these you know together? We have a lot of doctors who don't really have much information on adult ADHD, and we have some doctors who are very skeptical when it comes to adult ADHD. How do we address that? Well, I'm going to back up for a minute, and I'm going to talk about
1: pediatricians first, and then I'm going to talk about adult ADHD. Um, Chad has worked very closely with the American Academy of Pediatricians, and AAP has had a very strong program to train pediatricians in the evaluation and diagnosis of ADHD because they know that this is a uh, major diagnostic area for many pediatricians. And we, uh, Chad actually has had representatives on their uh, practice guidelines uh, uh, committee and we have, our National Resource Center has actually contributed materials to the toolkits that they have developed for pediatricians so that there are materials to give out to families, about, and we work very closely with them. The um, and That collaboration, I think, has led to pediatricians being more sensitive to um, what a good diagnosis takes. Now, that does not mean that every pediatrician knows about ADHD. So here's the, the things I want you to think about. A good evaluation cannot be done in five or ten minutes. We're talking about at least an hour. We're talking about a really thorough family history, we're talking about a thorough review of a child's performance at school, um, getting feedback from the teacher, getting feedback from both parents or the caregivers um, and observing the child. Um, and getting a really good medical history um, to rule out other kinds of causes. and I'll give you an example. Um, if a child has really bad allergies uh, during allergy symptoms, uh, excuse me, allergy season, they may look like they have ADHD because they've got a runny nose and their eyes are itchy and they're uncomfortable, and their behavior might be similar to somebody with ADHD. That's not ADHD, and it's not chronic in nature. Um, which are uh, uh, things we look for in diagnosing ADHD. So ruling out other disorders and other problems is very important. Even in, in, in terms of behavior, for instance, if there's been a divorce in the family recently or a death in the family, that child may be very anxious and depressed and it's not ADHD. So a really thorough family history, thorough medical history are very important. If you have not received those, then we would urge you to ask for it. So go back to your pediatrician, and you can either ask for a referral to a specialist, which could be a psychiatrist, it could be a psychologist, it could be a neurologist, um, or to ask the pediatrician to give you an hour appointment, who so that there can be a truly thorough evaluation. So that that we want to tell you to do that. Let's move on to adults right now. And uh, Chad hears about this all the time. We know there is a huge issue. Um, when it comes to the uh, treatment of adults with ADHD, um, I actually, my personal family physician is uh, very uh, active in the American Academy of Family uh, Physicians, and um, we have talked about this issue that there are indeed a lot of family physicians who are either, um, and, and, and well, let me back off for a minute and put it this way. There are a lot of family physicians who are very concerned about um, particularly young adults or adults in general asking for stimulant medications when the intent is to misuse or abuse those medications so they're very concerned about how do you screen those folks out versus people who legitimately have ADHD the other issue that family physicians are concerned about often is that they may have been trained in the day Ten, fifteen years ago, when we really did think that children grew out of ADHD, and so that was part of their training they 've always believed it they've never really paid attention enough to know that that our understanding has changed dramatically they may not have any training and and in that case, that is not the family physician for you with ADHD. you really need to find somebody who has more expertise in this area. If you're an adult with ADHD, you are far more likely to have to go to a specialist than we uh, do with children um, because the family physicians have really not tackled this issue the same way that pediatricians have tackled this issue. We are particularly hear complaints about young people who have been treated by a pediatrician, they go off for a job, they go off to college, it's now time to transition to a fam- to an adult doctor, a family practitioner and they hit this brick wall because um, they have difficulty getting um, a prescription for their medication. Um, we, we do work with uh, a lot of our members about what it takes to um, first of all find a adult physician that will treat you effectively and knows about ADHD, and number two, how to make sure that you have provided the history and the input so that that physician can more easily make an effective diagnosis. So, For instance, when Mike Chris, who is now 26, left his pediatrician and he was actually treated by a, a child analyst, a psychiatrist when he was younger, we got the entire medical history, all his medical records from um, the uh, psychiatrist who treated him as a child so that he could take that into and we have a copy of it at home and Chris has a copy at school so that he could take that to any physician to the college campus so that it, and we also have his assessment done by a neuro, neuro, uh, psychologist with again the uh, conclusions that he has ADHD and so he has a really good healthcare care um, record to document his ADHD. I think that's really important to have if you're an adult. Um, we need to get many, many more adult physicians treating um, ADHD effectively. It is on Chad's radar as one of our advocacy issues and so we hope will be as effective as we have been with pediatricians in the past as we move into the future.
0: Thank you. In In talking about pediatricians and talking about diagnosis, Kimberly has a question for you. Um, You also mentioned that the brains of people with ADHD function differently, and we can see that on different medical scans. Kimberly would like to know, can a brain scan be used to diagnose ADHD?
1: Great question. And the answer, and you will find there's a bit of a difference of opinion about this. So let me say that right up front. And Chad's stance is that we're not there yet. And let me explain why. If you look at 100 people with ADHD and 100 people without ADHD, and look at their their MRIs, uh, what we we often talk about a functional MRI, you can statistically say yes, they are significantly different. But among those 100 people, there may be five people in the non-ADHD category who, who really don't have it, whose brain scans look a little bit like they have ADHD, and you're likely to find five people in the ADHD category that look a little bit like the brain scans of people who don't, and this is sort of a gray area. So that what we know now, while statistically we can see the difference, on an individual level we have some overlap and that overlap can only be addressed by having large groups and not on an individual basis and what we talk about there are false positives and false negatives. A false positive would be saying looking at the uh, MRI and saying somebody has ADHD when they really don't because they fall in this gray area and a false negative would be saying to somebody who really does have it that they don't have it because they fall in this gray area. So when we look at diagnostic procedures it has to be strong enough that it can't just differentiate groups of people but it can it's a really black and white decision that um you either have it or don't, and there's no gray overlap at all. And unfortunately, in several of the things that are being um, tested these days diagnostically, and recently there's a was a new device that came out to really look at the brain waves and the theta and beta brain waves and the ratio there. And again, we still have that gray area where we get some we're not right at the individual level every time. So that's why we um, the, the most effective way of diagnosing ADHD is still to do a thorough evaluation and to, to observe the behavior, to talk to the teacher, to talk to spouses, to talk to parents, to talk to significant others, uh, to talk to the person involved and we find that is just as effective. Um, as using any of these other mechanisms and quite frankly far less expensive and so we also want to be efficient in how we spend our healthcare care dollars and if we can do that as effectively without charging for an MRI machine then um, we would encourage uh, people to do that and encourage clinicians to do that so we look at, is it a really black and white differentiation and then we also look at is there a more cost effective way to diagnose and today that the most cost effective way and the most effective way is to do that evaluation that we described.
0: Thank you. That has, a, that has been a question that we have heard from many people. I think that is a good answer that a lot of people have, have been looking for. Uh, we have a question from Heidi and she uh, says that her husband believes that their child's ADHD, as she says, is just a crutch. How can she approach uh, the information gap to better inform her husband, to better advocate for their child, and to really help things at home move more smoothly? wonderful question
1: thank you so much for asking that question Um, and this is an incredibly common experience and if it isn't the two parents it can be you know a grandparent or an aunt and uncle or somebody else in the family who disagrees and thinks that uh, it is not in the same place about understanding what ADHD and before I talk about how to change it I want to talk a little bit about the process that people go through uh, and I want you to think about grieving, um, because when you uh, uh, um, when there is a healthcare diagnosis uh, of a problem, we often go through a grieving process. Um, first, it's denial. You're kidding. You can't be me. Me. You really mean that? I truly. When I took Chris um, to be diagnosed and here I was, the clinical psychologist, um, for his ADHD to be screened for it, I was probably 80% certain they were com- going to come back to me and say, oh, Ruth, he's just a normal kid. He's just a little rambunctious. He's just fine. Well, they didn't say that. What they said is that on the assessment he did, he, he was in the 97th percentile of, um, of uh, having the symptoms of ADHD. And so I was in denial. And there is this denial process and that's what you're hearing from your husband. He is he's still in denial. And he's in denial because he we all you know, we want those when these babies come to us, the first thing we check is do they have ten fingers and ten toes? We want everything to be perfect for them. We want everything to be okay for them and of course we can't do that. Um, it, it, we're, we're not that powerful in the world, and that every child has some challenges, and we have to come to terms with. And so that grieving process is going on. So, after denial, what else is going on? Well, then there may be a period of um, anger, really being, you know. Uh, upset by and angry about what's going on here and who the hell is this doctor to say that my son or my daughter or that I have ADHD and what do they know and I'm not going back to him again because we're we're now we're past the denial now, but we're we're still sort of coming to terms with this, and that for a, a, there to be a period of anger is very normal, and so then the um, next stage is some depression, some sadness that my perfect child isn't perfect that we have a problem that we have to cope with, that there's a disability here, it's going to make a difference in our lives, and um, um, I don't like it, I don't w- like this news. I, I am, So there's some sadness that you have to go through in that process. And the last stage is ex- acceptance, and coming to terms with saying yes, this is who we are, uh, getting comfortable with that, realizing that it's not all bad, um, and that it's doable, and that you can move forward with it. People in the family never go through this process at the same rate. One of you gets there quicker than the other and so this is very, very common with couples that one parent gets there more rapidly than the other parent does and so you have to recognize that that's going on and be a bit supportive of that process and understanding that they are not yet there. And then, of course, the next thing is to help them get some information, and Chad and the National Resource Center can certainly provide that information. And, uh, uh, you know, about the whole issue of... Um, uh, And and I'll just give you a quick, a couple quick pointers, and to, but to be very non-judgmental about it. Try not to get into a fight. Try to keep the, the anger, your own emotion out, um, and just you know, give bits and pieces of information. You know, we talk about when do we? uh, Well, so for instance, um, you know, when when your uh, husband or spouse or partner says something about. well, we just have to be stricter. You say that you know this is a real brain disorder. The brain actually functions differently. I'd be glad to show you a site at the National Institute of Mental of Health that actually shows how the brain is different. And you call us at the NRC. We can show you, tell you where that uh, uh, link is um, to look at uh, the, where the brain actually matures differently in ADHD. Or um, you know somebody who's very angry and says, that teacher doesn't know what she's talking about. My kid is perfectly fine. And just a statement that says, you know, we absolutely love Jimmy. We want the very best for him. But that teacher really knows what the norms are for behavior. And she's telling us that Jimmy is outside those norms. And we should pay attention. And then leave it at that. And realize that this is a process that you have to go through. Um, but there is lots of information. You don't want to dump it all on a person at once, uh, but you can point them in the direction of really becoming aware and beginning to understand that um, this is a real disorder.
0: Thank you. Uh, in talking about this and, and talking about who do we talk to and, and so forth, you mentioned sometimes the reaction is, well, who is this person to say that my child has ADHD? We have a quite we have a question from both Charlotta and Tina where it comes to the other direction about disclosure. Charlotta would asks, How do we choose whether or not to disclose ADHD and to whom do we? And Tina would like to know Who do we not tell about our child's ADHD? Where do we withhold the information?
1: Oh, you guys, I have the best questions. We could spend a couple hours more doing this at this rate. And uh, Let me answer both those questions and I'm going to answer it a bit differently for children and for adults. when you have a child with adhd you really want to look at what's happening in your environment and how people are labeling your child and i want to i'm using the word labeling very purposefully because all of us are labeled every day in some way or another so if your child is being labeled as a screw up um, as disruptive as difficult to work with i quite frankly had one teacher when chris was uh, in middle school tell me that um, she had taught for 20 years, and she had never had a a student as difficult to have in her classroom as my son. Um, so, uh, the, you know, there, we, so you really want to think about how is your child being labeled, and if your child is being labeled negatively, then I think it's really important that you be more open about the disorder, um, because. Um, The labels are there anyway and it's just a matter of what label we're talking about. And I'd quite frankly rather have my child labeled with ADHD, particularly if it's real, than be labeled as somebody who's a failure and will never do well in this world. Um, The other issue to pay attention to is that of secrets and that when um, it is a secret, your kids figure out it's a secret and they wonder if it's something to be ashamed of. Uh, For my nephew, he came home from uh, sixth grade and said to his mother, Mom, this pill I take, it's for ADHD, isn't it? I have ADHD. And so he had figured that out on his own. But then the question, uh, next question was, why is it, you know, is are you ashamed of me? Are you embarrassed by me because I have ADHD?" And we don't want to communicate that message to our children. We want them to be comfortable that this is just one part of them. It's uh, We love this part of them as well as all the other parts, but, you know, we really want to focus on all the strengths and all the things we love about them and that they do really well and uh, not make a big deal about this. It just is. And just like having brown hair instead of blonde hair or, or blue eyes instead of hazel eyes, it just is. And so um, we want our kids to be more comfortable with that. I'll give you another example in a very different area. When Chris was in elementary school, my Chris is adopted. He actually was born in Calcutta, India. He has very dark skin and I'm white and he went through a period in elementary school where um, he hung out with the African-American and Hispanic kids and he didn't want anybody to know he had a white mother and I put up that, with that for a couple months and finally one day I said to him when he was getting all embarrassed because somebody at school might notice that I was his mother I just looked at him and I said get over it now I am your mother I am who I am you are who you are and um, this, and this is it sweetie And um, From that day forward he he got that pretty quickly um, and the message was um, everybody has challenges, everybody has differences, this is just one of our differences. So for kids I think you want to help them feel good about who they are and so you want to be very careful about how you handle this. Now let me move to adults because that's a little bit more problematic area. In adults, um, particularly in the workplace, Depending on that, you really going to want to pay attention to the um, culture of your workplace. And if there is a lot, if and if the culture is such, is that there's not a lot of tolerance of, of differences, uh, if there's not a lot of tolerance of diversity, um, if uh, you've heard people make negative comments, and stigmatizing comments about ADHD, you may ch- and 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 this is a big and and you do not need any accommodations in the workplace that you're able to manage it pretty effectively on your own you may not want to disclose because you don't want people to change their opinions of who you are and your work because they have negative ideas about what ADHD is. On the other hand, if you have a workplace where di- diversity is appreciated, that people know that um, you've got some great creative ideas, um, but they also know you've got some challenges. And particularly if you do need accommodations in the workplace, then you need to you do need to disclose, and you do need to let people, particularly your supervisor, know that you have ADHD. So you need to evaluate that. And the most important thing I would say for both children and adults is that you need to be comfortable with your decision. So that, because if you are uncomfortable, other people pick up your discomfort. So in our family, because we've been very, very open from the very beginning. And remember, I've got this very dark young man, and I'm just white as can be, so we're used to differences in our family, and uh, the I'm a single mom, um, we're all about differences. So we're real comfortable with this, and both Chris and I don't have, a, a, we'll tell anybody, anywhere, anytime. And he knew when I took this job at Chad that that meant he would be talked about all the time, and he said, and I will tell you what he said to me, folks, he said, Mom, you can Talk to me to the Chad members anytime you want about anything, as long as I don't have to hear about ADHD every day at home. So that's the deal we made, and we've held that deal to this day. Um, so be sure to be comfortable with whatever decision you make.
0: Thank you. We are coming to our last group of questions, and this this question goes back to what you were saying earlier about children. Um, Sam and Natalie both have young children and Sam asks at what age should a child be explained that she has ADHD and and have the disorder explained to her, and Natalie is a little more specific. Her child is seven, and she and her spouse are debating whether or not they should tell him now at seven. So, what is a good age to really have this conversation, especially when we're raising children to self-advocate and to work against stigma? When does this begin?
1: I am so delighted with the questions you folks are asking. Um, this is actually—I want you to think of this as not an announcement, but rather an ongoing conversation. And it's—and—and and if you think about sort of talking about sexuality, it's sort of the same process. So your child is going to begin to come to you with some questions about um, uh, why things happen the way they do. And in the beginning, what you want to talk about with your young children is that. Simply, um, there are some wonderful children's books out there. For instance, there's one, and maybe Karen and Adisa can help me here. There's one about a race car, and it is about, of course, there, the race car motor revs and goes very, very, very fast, and the family station wagon goes at a much more sedate level. and To help children understand that they may have a race car brain instead of a station wagon brain, and so that they, their uh, behavior and their thoughts and what they're doing may be at a, a happening at a very different speed like the race car. But di- but that race car still has to drive um, in the regular streets off the race track and has to slow down and has to abide by all the laws and so those kind of analogies help kids understand that there are differences that, that we all have and I would keep any discussion with a very young child more about actual problems and behavior and not so much about the name of the diagnosis. That will come soon enough, but really helping people understand that, yeah, sweetie, you know, your brain just goes a little bit faster or y- you are, you know, y- y- you're my bouncy kid. You bounce uh, like you're on a trampoline every day, and you bounce against the wall and off the table and up and down, and, and God love you. You keep all the rest of us really active. And so focus more on the behavior and that different people have different types of behavior. And you can talk about um, their friends and somebody who's much more calm, talks more slowly, isn't so bouncy. And they begin to appreciate the diversity of. Uh, that people bring to um, the world and that their being a little bit different in these ways is no big deal, it just is. And then, as time goes on, and your children get into upper uh, elementary school, you—they're going to know—they're going to hear about ADHD. And so, you, they—you should be comfortable in really saying, "Yeah, that's what it is, darling. We, you know, we've talked about how your brain works a little bit differently, and, and the name for it is ADHD. And—and um, and that's if you take medication. That medication is to to help. Um, if you don't take medication, but you do other kinds of things, it's to help. Um, that's why we have a schedule by the front door of everything you have to do to get out the door in the morning. Is um, and not all your friends have that schedule at the front door, but we do because we know it helps you. And so you're you're again going to emphasize the 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 diversity, and you may be a little bit more problem focused, but the message is that we're here to help you with those pro- problems. And I know you are not. Uh, that you are not being bad when these things happen, that it's because of the ADHD and that you're working very hard on controlling it and I'm here to help you do that because that's my job as your mom or your dad. And then in high school, you're really talking, in middle school, you're really talking about beginning to incorporate the self-management into um, and and the treatment process for those children so that when you go to the doctor that you really want to be sure the doctor is asking your child how they feel, how things are going to engage them in the process to ask for their opinion um, to be very involved in doing that because when your child hits 18 you're out the door and they need to be able to do this on their own. Um, You may actually uh, Your children may um, be responsible for um, making sure they take their medication every day with supervision. But that it's their job to come to you and say it's time for my pill, mom, um, and uh, or if they have a behavior intervention chart, you know that, and we're going to do it every evening during homework time, you know that put put some responsibility on them, ask for their input, ask them how they think it's going, involve them in the process, and so they're beginning to manage their ADHD, and you want to make that more and more the responsibility of your child. The older they get. So when they hit early adulthood, they are ready to move on and to do this
0: independently. Thank you for joining us for this ADHD Awareness Month and for this special presentation. We hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. This does conclude our webcast.